maze experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done My maze experts Always know what's cooking How the game was lost And how it could have been won Hello and welcome to People's Game. Uh, we are coming to you from Melbourne's Wanaka Centre tonight, which doesn't really suit our DNA, but such is life. It's been a huge week um, in footy uh, since we last spoke to you, and I've been talking to the walls. So tonight I've enlisted a real human to chew it all over with me. I'm uh, joined here by Australia's second favourite optionally bald off spinner. Welcome, Gordon. Nice, Gordon. And thanks for having me on the pub. So we've got a, a bumper agenda tonight. Um, we're going to give you our final thoughts on the first week of AFLW and the three games we didn't get to talk to you about last week and then go through all the reaction, uh, the memo, and then get into round two um, before we have the people's question, which is tonight going to be a bit of a contentious one. We're going to have a chat about equality in the workplace and Tiffany Cherry's article in the Herald Sun. And we're going to then move on to a little bit of AFLX begrudgingly and then we're going to finish off by talking to you about Sam Lane's new book, Raw. Feeling good. So, round one. Um, we obviously saw the Carlton Collingwood game. We listened to the media that came out of it. But what did you make of the Crows-Brisbane game on the Saturday? Crows-Brisbane game on the Saturday was nothing as actually I expected. Coming into this, I think people underrated Brisbane heavily. And obviously Adelaide came off their grand final winning antics. And I think the actual narrative this year will be the opposite. So people thought Brisbane were lucky to get there last year and won't do much this year. And people thought Adelaide were dominant all season and will continue to dominate. And it hasn't turned out that way either in round one or in round two, in fact. So Adelaide was uh, three goals, one nineteen, defeated by Brisbane, four goals, seven thirty-one. And this kind of game already proved that maybe the memo, which we'll talk about later, was a bit a bit hot takey or a bit too quick off the uh, off Stephen Hawking's printer press because it was the game flowed. It was low scoring only in the sense that Adelaide were thoroughly beaten, but Brisbane could definitely score at will when they wanted to. Mm. And really just errant kicking made this not a fifty point like fifty point game for them. So that was good to see. Uh, the number one takeout for this I think is that it does prove, especially in this league, and only with sixteen players on the field that your the best player has a huge impact on the outcome of the game and Aaron Phillips was missing from round one and they looked thoroughly underpowered in the midfield. So a lot was left to Chelsea Randall off halfback to try and be their their Mopperapara, their rebounder and also their attacking threat. And she can't do all three obviously because it's just you know it's too hard. And they really fell away. Um, and Brisbane look looked pretty pretty good. So players like uh, Kate Lukens and the Zelke and Alexandra Anderson look good as like a nice core underneath there, which they didn't quite have last year, which is why everyone was so surprised about their performances. But standout for me was Sabrina Frederick Tor and just 10 marks. And especially that's like something came out that, you know, all about they need this 5 6 5 rule because the girls can't mark a lot of their hair and they can't take contested grabs. I think players are proving that. And Sabrina definitely did that on the weekend and showed that, you know, I'm a, I'm a genuine key forward and uh, someone to look out for for the rest of the year. But you also caught uh, the Melbourne GWS game, Gordo, which was a cracker and you could probably say that on the merits of, or their, on the basis of that performance, uh, the Giants had improved somewhat would have been the original outtake. Yes. I still think, again, the memo ruins this completely because the memo suggests that 
Low scoring is bad, so all teams should focus on attack. And that's all well and good, but you need to add a defend to win. That's what the Giants didn't do. Um, so I, I don't think they actually, they don't even improve that much. They, they scored in a high scoring game, which is all right, but they, they, couldn't, they couldn't defend when they needed to, and that's why Melbourne won. So it was 7 3 45. They defeated the Giants 6 3 39. And uh, it was the old, the old head, in inverted commas, the skipper, Daisy Pierce, who dominated in the midfield, as is her want usually, and the forward, Rochelle Cranston. Again, kicking plenty of goals. I think the Giants are a bit lucky in this one as well because Paxman went out with back spasms early, early in the match. I think if she had stayed on, should have had a massive influence, especially working as that one-two pairing with Daisy Pierce, which is probably the pet to look out for for the year and why Melbourne... Almost now, I'm kind of taking over the Bulldogs as my favourites for the Premiership. Mm-hmm. They're definitely the top two right now. But I think this game definitely proved two things. The, the lead changed, uh, I think, that six times in the, in the second half, which kind of disproves that theory of a stayed boring-style football. So I think we spoke that first point. Yeah. yeah. AFLW can be a really exciting product, a really exciting game, and I think this shows it, that it can happen now, and it'll only get better as, as, as everyone develops, coaches develop, players develop, and we get used to watching it. Yeah, so I trotted down to the Noval on Sunday afternoon. I love love the ground, love going down there. Really, really, really good atmosphere. Got in really early, got a seat on the wing. Um, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing, but we were actually sat near the family of uh, Bannister, who, good last name, but double N, who uh, actually did her ACL, which was the first of the year, and... Um, it wasn't the nicest of scenes uh, when she went down in her family, sort of, who had been going off all day, um, realised that she was in a bit of a predicament. Um, but on the on the field and on the scoreboard, um, I, I actually found this game thoroughly entertaining. A lot of people sort of highlighted the fact that Frio struggled to score early. Um, as a saying, it was a bit one-sided, but I actually thought in the first 10 or so minutes, the ball was zipping from end-to-end pretty regularly. And I just thought that, Ultimately, the dogs just had an ability to play footy on the outside and take uncontested marks that really set them apart. Um, but I was sort of a little bit impressed, to be honest, by Frio. Um, they went quite direct a lot of the time. Um, but again, the dogs were just super. Like So between Ellie Blackburn and Katie Brennan, some of the stuff they were doing up forward was just remarkable. I think Ellie kicked one of the goals of the year, um, crumbing off a pack and then running around a mangle and dobbing it from about 40. Um, it was just beautiful. And Katie Brennan really proved um, why she was such a big loss to the comp and to the dogs um, in that opening season because she was just something else. I can't think of a player um, I've seen thus far who just looks so graceful. Um, she takes so many of her marks on the lead. She's so comfortable marking the ball in her hands. Um, the goal she kicked from the pocket was just immaculate. Um, so there was an extent to which this was really the Blackburn and Blackburn and Brennan show, um, which we didn't get to see a lot of last year. Elsewhere, I was really impressed by uh, Ash Utry, who is a bit of a hockey convert um, into AFLW. I thought she was um, a bit of a tackling machine. And um, obviously, Isabel Huntington, we got a fairly good look at her, and she was double-teamed um, first up. So, yeah, I mean, I thought the Dogs just had a really good spread of contributors. Um, for Frio, Ashley Sharp was pretty good in the mid, but... Just looking at uh, the way that they actually managed to line up, you know, they weren't able to match the dogs at Coalface. So, I mean, I, I left that on Sunday really thinking that, you know, I'd seen a, a top-rate dogs team. And I, I thought it was very much uh, along the lines of what we predicted when we spoke um, on the first podcast. Um, I just thought they looked so, so improved on the previous year to the point that I really thought that their victory 
was more about them than it was about Frio. Yeah, definitely agree. And I, and I think, again, it proves that that top player theory when you add Brennan into that mix, her influence on the game. Like, a lot of, a lot of the preparation the other teams have come to how we shut down KB and not about how we beat the Bulldogs. And mm-hmm. by doing that, it allows other players like your, like your Blackburn to come and actually steal the show. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that, that, that town again just proves it, especially at, this, especially at this stage of the AFLW, if you have four or five genuine good players, it'll be very hard to beat because there's not a lot of people who can play that shutdown role, and especially when the AFL saying, don't, don't do it. So. Mm. And we obviously spoke about the fact that they got in Huntington and Conti, um, both top 10 draft picks who both played really, really well. Obviously, we'll speak a bit more about Huntington coming on, but... Um, she was, um, again, really good and takes a little bit of weight off KB in the sense that they now, when she's fit, they had that really good two-prong mm. forward attack, which allowed KB to lead a long way off the ground and do a lot of roaming, which she has the athletic ability to do. Um, again, how that injury will affect them overall um, will kind of remain to be seen. But, I mean, the biggest outtake from that was that the teams that have really shone had just such strong midfielders in, in Melbourne and Bulldogs, for me, who are looking amazing. Um, it's all that stuff in and around the contest and just the ability to be clean. And that was what was so absent on that first Friday night, which really brings us, I guess, into sort of the reaction to this round. Um, so we obviously had quite a few articles in the wake of round one. We had Terry Wallace criticising the scoring and talking about how they were heavily responsible for the way that the football was played. We also had an article from Richard Hines on the ABC that spoke really about whether we actually should be able to criticise AFLW, whether it's we're not allowed to yet. Um, which was, again, really informative. But for me, uh, this was a little bit of a much ado about nothing. Uh, like, Friday night was an ordinary game, and in any, in any sport in the world, no matter how it's played, no matter the code, no matter the level, you can't guard against that. Like, sometimes the players are just going to rock up and not really put on a very good show. And also, you look at the players, like the teams that have played, Collingwood is probably not going to finish in the top two. They're not a bench team in this year's competition. They've got some good players, but overall they're mm-hmm. not. And the same with Carlton, I think, again, some good standout players, but overall, not the terms of these trying to hold the track at the end of the year. This happens every year in the AFL. Richmond and Carlton have opened up the season every year in the AFLM, and no one's going around an article being like, oh, we need to have 16 players. We need to have thrones. We need to make sure that Jack Rewalt kicks eight goals a game. Like, we, there's none of that happens. We just go, oh, these two teams have been around about the middle middle four, bottom four teams the last five years. Mm. They open it up because of a historical context and we just deal with the fact that it's not a great game on a Thursday night. So the actual memo itself, what was it? Well, it it was a rule that wasn't a rule. It was a guideline that you could kind of take a lead. But if you don't take it, the umpires won't pull the ball up. So it was a rule. It just wasn't put through laws. Yeah. And um, what did it actually involve? It involved starting positions or zones, which has been the hot topic which you can kind of reheat whenever you wanted over the last five years of the AFL talkback sections. The 565 in this case, or 666 for the 18-person aside game. And uh, what was really weird about it is they cited examples from the round one games, but it was kind of just like, oh, here's a situation, here's a still of a, a congested contest. And you go, big whoop, that happens all the time, and then someone gets the ball, then they run away. So we shouldn't really be an issue. So interesting things came out. We had uh, the deleted tweet, which I'll let you talk about because you quite enjoyed yeah. this. Jess Wushner actually just tweeted that essentially the players are out there to win. Um, I thought there was some pretty exciting stuff on the weekend and I think this is just ridiculous. How many rule changes do you want? Is it even AFL? Now, when I first found out about this, I, I mean, I was a little bit disheartened in the sense that 
I am not necessarily against the concept of zones, but this was just just an outrageous way of doing it for me. Like, come in, week one, done. Okay, yeah, about to have another round. Oh, wait, let's not even put in a rule. This is the bit that staggers me. Like, I was thinking very much about Pirates of the Caribbean here, where they talk about the Pirates Code being guidelines rather than actual rules. Yeah. Parlay and all the rest of that bollocks. Um, And that was kind of where this went. Like, is this a guideline? No, it's it's not a guideline. Like, if you don't do this, the umpire is not going to ball the ball, like, throw the ball up. So... That's a rule. Like, so my question with this is, if we need an anti- anti-density, why were we not proactive rather than reactive on the front foot before the season even started? And let's set something up that actually is going to work. The other issue I have with this is... To be fair, though, the AFL oh. did, did talk to the coaches. Like, this had been an ongoing mm-hmm. conversation, mm-hmm. and Beck got out on offside, as mentioned this, saying that, yeah, we have been in conversation about it. The AFL is concerned about congestion in the women's game and congestion in the game overall and we are in constant discussion with them which is all well and good but yeah the, the optics of it of saying oh here's what we're going to do here's you know let's make the change now after round one does make it look like a snap decision even if the conversation has been going on for 18 months mm. or whatever so did look great yeah I mean I think the way that it looks publicly is average my first thought process here when they did this was that it kind of changed the way that you coach and I I was really interested in the fact that, like, there are some situations in football where you just don't want to be told that you have to set up this amount of players in your forward line and this amount of players in your back line. Like, if you're three minutes, if there's three minutes going to the grand final and you're a goal up, like, no. Like, that's not happening. I'm putting a loose man behind the ball. Like, that's inherent. It's been happening for so many years. And I think that if you're going to bring this rule in, I would have liked to have seen it done in a way that still allows a little bit of flexibility for that sort of stuff. Because to me, that's inherently natural. So where this actually has occurred is in the TAC Cup. And the TAC Cup is designed as a talent identification competition. So yes, there are coaches who want to win. Yes, there are players who want to win a trophy. But overall, the whole idea of the TAC Cup is to expose young talent to recruiters so that players can make informed, so that coaches can make informed draft decisions with their clubs and their player management groups. So what they do is they have the zones. You have to have four players in each of the 50s at any one time. So, yeah, so you, you can play. You can play. Yeah, you yeah. can play structured up zones, or whatever. But you can't. You can't fully flood a contest. You can't flood behind mm. the ball. You can't go to the extreme. And I don't see why that couldn't be the case here, especially with the limited players. Because what? And then we'll get into this a bit more. But what you see is allowing to go away from the five-six-five. Five, actually, allow better spread outside the channels in a contest. So if you're going to have six at the contest, you want to win that contest. So you're pretty much going all in once you take out the ruckman. That's 5v5. There's not a lot of opportunity there for spread. If you're allowed to have a two at each end compulsory and then organise around that, it allows you to actually be more creative with where you go on your wings and where you go on people attacking mm-hmm. off, off the contest. Yeah. And so this is kind of the conversations that need to be had. And is it that these players don't have enough time to learn what are complex running movements and running rounds and they just get sucked in? And that's what Beth got up, brought up again on offside. So she said that, she really enforced a 565 at Adelaide last year because, A, that's pure footy and inverted commas, which I don't agree with because footy is very fluid and has been for the last 110 years. But also it's simpler for, the, for them to understand. So it's like, oh, there's a reset, there's a contest. Mm-hmm. I know that I need to be getting, getting width, getting length, mm-hmm. and you guys can take the ball I'll go and find it off you. Yeah. But what it doesn't allow is for better Defense, and so you're saying to the coaches, you have to make the game look good, and, and at the expense of you 
yeah. being able to defend and win a game when the pressure's on. And again, we're getting that in round two. That's what Adelaide did this week. They, they play their 5-6-5 five, five, as they always do, and they lost because they couldn't defend. And when the other team got on top, they didn't, they didn't adjust. I was just like, oh, well, we'll just keep going. And then it, that's not footy either. Footy is yeah. making adjustments and actually knowing as a team how to win a game. That's sport in general. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're taking away from enforcing this guideline. And I don't profess to know the individual opinions of each of the coaches on this, but there's only, there's only really two ways that I think you could be for this. The first one is if you think your playing list is exceptional in terms of ability and talent and you can just beat teams in a game that's really yeah. open. If you don't think that, then there's no way you want these rules. You, totally want, yeah. you want a contested game that shuts down. Or you're in a, and I'm, it's interesting that Goddard spoke publicly on this, if, and I think the only other reason is that you genuinely have the best interests of the game at heart. Which I think that Goddard does, but she's also got runs on the board. Yeah, she's, she's, won, she's, she's, she's won the premiership. She's sitting so, pretty. Like, so she bought herself time. So I'm not saying that um, all the coaches are necessarily for or against. As I said, I don't profess to know. But I, I think it puts them in a really difficult position because they are essentially chasing results. So when the AFL goes to them at the start of the year, like, oh, do you want this? It's very easy to say why some coaches would have said no and why it didn't happen. My only thing is that if the AFL is going to be the guardian of this, as I said, just be proactive. Make this really clean. Do it at the start of the year. Let's play every single one of the rounds with, to be honest, I think the best equivalent is the tack up rules. And I have no problem with that. Uh, even with the Wushner tweet, like I don't think this, this makes it not AFL. And the AFL, and this is sort of an outtake from Sam Wayne's book, took in an attitude uh, eventually that they used to have a third wave feminism where everything had to be equal. So like we do everything for the men the same as we do it for the girls. And that's our and they got away from that and went to fourth-wave feminism, which is essentially just doing what is best for the girls, for the women, which I think in this situation probably does apply. Like, let's just do what is the best thing for this whole competition. There may be a time in the future where everyone has talent, talented players on this so they can all play this way and have a hope of winning. Right now, I mean, I honestly thought that bringing this stuff in at the start of the season wouldn't have been a problem, but it's just been so messy, and that's my main issue with it. And you can look to other sports for guidance on this. Like, tennis plays three sets. Mm. Women's cricket brings in the boundaries. Mm. Like, there's, there's no Ferrari in that. No one's going, well, it's not tennis. It's still a racket and a tennis mm. ball and a net. And, and cricket's still cricket. As bad as a ball, as a pitch, as a boundary. You just get on with it. So, yes, they, they do play with 16, so why not have zones of some description? But more than point, as you said, and them out long enough, it's the optics. Do it. Organise yourself at the start of the season. All go... We bug it up, we're going, it's a rule now, round two, sorry, we're still learning these things. It's short, short seasons, that's why we have to do mm. them to the fly. But moving on from there, we basically got into, into round two after all of this had happened and um, I... Completely not to be a problem. I mean, Friday night really was, it was written by the gods. Like, when the weather is the way it is, the AFL couldn't send a memo up to the gods of the weather and say, can you please stop raining, you're turning the football average and... Um, as it was, you know, we had a thunderstorm break. Um, some of the, the shots of the thunder in Sydney were pretty amazing. And I guess on the field, this was really a night that will be remembered for the long-term implications for Carlton in particular. Um, as we said, with, you know, Katie Brennan missing last year, losing marquee players out of this competition is A, not great for the competition because we want the best players playing, and B, potentially really harmful for the teams. And so... Well, that's, that's not just this competition, that's all sport. Like, mm. If you lose your best player, you are thoroughly disadvantaged. Mm. Look, at, look at the Bulldogs, yeah. look at most teams. Absolutely. And so, I mean, Carlton had their measure most of the night. 
Um, to the point that they had seven straight scoring shots for seven behinds that put them ahead. So GWS would keep a straight goal. Um, it never really looked to me like they were in any great trouble, but the real story really was obviously Brie Davy doing her ACL. Um, and if that wasn't a big enough kick in the teeth, um, Taylor Harris is, I guess, under a little bit of a cloud, and there remains to be sort of seen the severity of this, but um, looked to have done a bit of a shoulder really late in the game. Um, and I guess we've seen over the last three weeks, we've seen three ACLs. It's obviously horrible. Um, and for me, this, this leaves Carlton in a really precarious position. Another thing that I'd like to bring up is when we said last week about what the money says in terms of should they be paid more, should there be attendance uh, fees and tickets, all that kind of thing. This is this is the number one key for me is that they aren't professional yet, they're semi-professional. But if you go do an ACL, depending on what your work is, that takes you out of your full-time work mm-hmm. as well as your season here. So you've lost your season. Mm-hmm. They're only on year-long contracts as well. So you miss six games, your replacement comes in and dominates. Suddenly they go, well, an ACL takes a year to recover. You won't play AFL, they won't play um, VFLW, or you won't play your own state versions. So you'll be out for a year. This player's come in, proven herself, and now will probably take your spot. So you might actually get delisted next year and miss a year's work as well. So I think here's where people need to go. You're paying them almost as like security money so that if you do get injured, here's the insurance that, mm. you know, we have your back a little bit. And that's why they need to bring in longer contracts and that thing as well because... They, yeah, this is a sport where, A, it's been proven that women are more likely to get ACL injuries just because of genetics and other things like that. But also, B, is that if you have such a short season, the implications are beyond just the sporting realm. They go back into their into their real life as well. Yes. Getting on to, on to Saturday, you, you caught the Melbourne Adelaide game. I uh, certainly did. And uh, talking about season-shaping results, this is certainly it. The defending premiers are in deep doo-doo at the moment. They got went down to Melbourne who, again, just put an exclamation point on the fact that they should be favourites and more so they probably under, underperformed last year because their talent has improved a little bit but it's pretty much the same core and that two years together has shown as well as all those exhibition games they did an advantage of most of their girls had been exposed to each other. It's a pretty big Darabin cohort in here as well. So there's lots of Teamwork and lots of kind of chemistry being formed over multiple years of football, and that's been shown in their performances so far. So they were 88 56, defeated Adelaide four goals straight. And that was a 32 point win, and again, a big thumb to the nose about the old zones and congestion and low scoring footy. Pretty much women's games are half the time, you don't have time on as a men's game, mm-hmm. and they scored what you would expect to see in a half of football. So totally fine mm-hmm. by me. Uh, what I didn't like is, again, Beck Goddard backing this her very strict zoning. So they, they were very good in attack, but Melbourne probably a better two-way team, and so they were able to rebound. And then once they got that rebound and their intercept, their, their turnover play was just so much better than Adelaide's, and Adelaide were really a one-way front-running team. And that's concerning two weeks in a row now, which has been a bit interesting to see. Uh, the other takeaway there... Inside ball is absolutely key, I think, in AFLW, as we mentioned. You really need those explosive players. And again, the absence of Aaron Phillips is taking away, their, taking away the, the, the comps leading inside player, but also, obviously, Adelaide's. Without her, she's then really hard to try and get that clearance, an explosive clearance that allows mm-hmm. them to get quick scoring yeah. opportunities. So but when she returns, they might be able to roll off six wins in a row and make the final again. But at this stage, they look... They look, a, they look a class player, sure. And so we moved on to Frio and Collingwood um, at the new Optus Stadium. We had a record broken 
and we had well, we had no more hope, and we had another disappointing loss for the Magpies. On that, do you want to talk about the record? Because apparently, it's a, there's a bigger story to this than maybe everyone got exposure to. Yeah, I mean, I thought that this was a really good opportunity to kind of use this crowd record as an exploration of the pre-AFL history of the of AFL of women's AFL rather before the concept of AFLW was a thing. This is a record that goes back to the 1920s. It's it's 90 years old when we set a crowd record at Adelaide Oval. Um, women played huge amounts of football during the war. When men were away, there was quite a, a well-known game between Richmond and Carlton. Um, and as I was discussing this morning, uh, the Victorian women's football league started in the 80s. So there's so much background, and I think that this was an opportunity to explore a little bit of that, and potentially an opportunity to miss. I did catch a bit of the replay on TV because all these games are on loop, and the noise was wonderful. It was exceptional. It was, again, sounded just so loud, and must have been something you know totally different for the players. Definitely, definitely. And uh, the game was pretty good as well. So Collingwood came out of the blocks early, and it looked like... The uh, woe and the scorelessness of last week, it was put behind them as they scored lots of goals early. And uh, Emma King had the, the joy of becoming the first goal scorer of the stadium, as much as that is going to be another trivia fact for you guys to hang on to. Uh, and then it all just changed in an instant, really, because the Dockers went, all right, let's, let's try and kick some goals. And out of all the teams in the AFLW, that uh, have been lambasted for dour play, it is almost unironically that the Dockers were the team to do that. Just obviously the men's team have been down there teaching them how to play boring footy for the last year and a half. And they went, no, nah, sod this. We're actually going to try and play aggressive footy. And they did that. And again, they used those wing positions quite well. So that space of that 16, that 16 player setup allows in the wings, they exploited. And they pretty much played like heavily aggressive one-way footy which I suppose makes a good spectacle, but again, with two teams playing one-way footy, you just get more goals. And I don't personally, I don't see that as a better spectacle, a better contest, because it, it just becomes the opposite effect. And obviously, I think just people at a outside or fringe level just like goals. Goals, you're being told that goals are good, mm-hmm. but if you actually break it down, it's, it's not as interesting if there's less of a contest. But that's I suppose for another day. Uh, some standouts. Uh, Daniel Hooker was clearly best on for mine. 20 possessions, six tackles and two goals. And she did it from both ends, two-way running and also straight from defence. So really good, again, in a, in a week where people have said maybe make the field smaller, maybe you know women can't kick that far. We saw long kicking, we saw aggressive play, we saw hard running, all the things we see in AFLM as well. Mm-hmm. Um, takeaways, so I think Memo got received. But again, I think another team lost because of it. So Magpies committed heavily to this. They're all about the look of the game as well. Um, but I also think that that gave them another dose of the collie wobbles. And yet again, man, the men's team's been struggling, now the women's team is struggling as well. And it just seems that the whole era of this, and maybe it's because they're such a big club on both sides that they need, they have this, this magnification of their results. But again, if you look at list for list, they've got some good players, but they're not, they're not sticking out well against the other teams. Another thing I'll mention as a little drive-by is we talked last week about putting a price on the tickets, and I think that did have some effect. So apparently 54,000 tickets were sold for $2 each, but only 41,975 people turned up. Now, I think you still would have sold 54,000 tickets at $10 a pop, $15 a pop, and you probably would have had more people being like, actually, I'll go. 
because you've had over 10,000 people not show up who had bought tickets. And so again, I think that there was a novelty to it and they wanted to make sure that was a massive number they could promote for their own for their own sake and for everyone's sake and for the game's sake. But I think that alone just shows that you need to add more cachet to to what the product mm. is by giving in a dollar value to it. We've talked about that enough, but I think that's a little drama. No, I agree, because I would I would probably not hesitate to give a miss on a two dollar ticket if I got home from work and didn't feel like it. But if I paid thirty bucks or twenty bucks or twenty five bucks for the ticket, uh, I'd probably be going. So the final game around was really a game that established the dogs as I think one of the front runners, but I wouldn't be counting the lines out yet. So the dogs uh, went up to Brisbane and came away winners five three thirty three to three six twenty four. I kind of caught this and made the mistake in the first quarter of getting up to make a coffee, and then in the three minutes that it took to make that coffee, uh, Izzy Hunter did kick two goals and then done ACL. And Charlotte Curtis on the call had called her. The best player in the women's in the women's game, like hands down. Forget that she's a first year player. The best player. I think that's a massive reaction. That's that's a hype call right there. Really? That's some yeah. Well, American style. Interesting one. This is the greatest player of all time. She's been playing. She's played two. She played one and a half a quarter games. But I guess it's also what level you're considering. Um, I think it's entirely feasible that that statement could, could be true. I think the great shame. This is kind of what Shiloh puts me in nice ways with this morning, is that it's just such a shame now for spectators that we now have denied the opportunity to see her for another 12 months. Yeah. Um, and this is a girl who's also come back from a broken leg in junior footy and another knee. And I think, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure how yet this plays on the dogs. I think it is abundantly clear to me that they probably wouldn't have won that game without the, the two minutes of absolute power footy that she played. Um, but how they react to that, this will test them. Um, it's a genuine A-grade footballer. You know, she may not be the best player in the game. But um, she is a class act. Sort of away from that, um, this was, again, I think the Dogs really managed to get the ball moving pretty nicely and looked to be generally total control. And they started a little bit at the end and only, in the end only really got up narrowly. But I didn't really feel like they were going to be done. Um, Blackburn a little bit less impressive, but Carney and Kirsty Lamb were very good. The outtake from this for me, I mean... The Dogs of Melbourne are scheduled to play in round seven. And I think at this stage of the year, on the body of evidence that I've seen, it's entirely feasible that we'll see the same the same game two weeks in a row, which is a really interesting position for the comp to be in. I'm not sure that if that is a dead roller, it's going to be a sensational thing. It may be case in point for semi-finals. But I also think that Brisbane are really heavily still in this. And the, the way back here for Adelaide, they are now at the last chance saloon. I'd almost go so far to say is that after two weeks, we're down to a three-horse race um, between Brisbane, Melbourne, and the Dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's still too early to call. Losing back-to-back games at Adelaide makes it difficult, but they lost two games last year in the final. So two days doesn't nail you out. It just means that now you can't lose, so that's extra pressure in how you deal with that. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Carlton's gone 2-0, and we called it with pretty much crossed them out of the race already. So mm. we need to see how they react against some better competition going forward. I still think I think their bench is, benchmark has been set by Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs, but I still think teams can can upset the apple cart. Yeah. Two points really to finish. First one is that we will see draws. I'm 100% sure of that because generally the lowest scoring means that just mathematically it's more likely that there will be a draw. Yeah. The second thing is, and I think this is going a little bit back to the memo, but the style and the nature of the competition and the system, and this is something that Beck Goddard did mention, 
does lend itself to negative footy because the consequences for a loss are so dramatic. Mm. And I reckon, and we did talk a little bit about semi-finals, I think one of the biggest arguments for semi-finals is that it would give more opportunity to teams that have drop games, which then promotes a more aggressive style of football because there's less on the line. Yeah. Um, and I think that if there's anything that's an outtake in a, a case for semi-finals, it's that in conjunction with the right anti-density, anti-congestion rules, they could actually be a really good thing for the way this competition is played. Because as you say, Adelaide did lose two games last year and snuck in on percentage. The results could do all sorts of wacky things. We did also see so many teams get better over the course of last year. Collingwood came home really strong. So it's not out of the question that, you know, multiple teams will lose games. Um, it may be that no team is undefeated. But around our round two, with our people's champion votes from the first two rounds... Very exciting decision made by us. We are we have become you know the self-elected bastions of the People's Champion Award. <laughs> and for round one, the votes went to one vote Taylor Harris with five marks, three tackles, and one goal in her win or Carlton's win over Collingwood. Two votes went to Sabrina Frederick Traub for Brisbane with ten marks. Apparently, in a game where women can't take contested marks, she has something to say about that. The evergreen Daisy Pierce got three votes with 90 possessions and six tackles and probably the badge for the best inside meet in the game still. Kenny Brennan, three goals, 12 disposals, six marks and three tackles. The all-round package that is probably the best player in the league, KB, gets four votes. But round one went to Ellie Blackburn with five votes, 23 possessions, five marks and a goal. And she really was the best player on the ground and the best player of the round in round one. Round two, one vote went to Daisy Pierce again, the Evergreen, 17 possessions and 11 tackles. And if you go back and watch some highlights of her tackling from this game, she would make some of them really hurt. Uh, two went to Brie Davies despite her injury, her season injury. She had 16 possessions and six tackles in just over half a game. That was a very impressive performance by her, and unfortunately that's all we'll see for her for this year. And McKinney from the Bulldogs got three votes, 18 disposals, nine tackles, five marks, and yet another convincing win for the Doggies. Freo, the Dow Freo turned into the goal-scoring machines, and it was on the back of Daniel Hooker's performance of two goals, 20 disposals, six tackles, and two marks. Another all-round performance there from a person who can play pretty much any line. But five votes went to the other Melbourne player, Karen Paxman, with 21 disposals, did it all over the ground, really influenced the game when the game was hot. And uh, her and Daisy Pierce will be a force to reckon with, and I cannot wait to see them play the Bulldogs. Let's have a whinge. Well, let's have a whinge. So I, uh, very quickly, uh, I'm going to enlist my favourite politician, the man, the man who's solely responsible for me passing Year 12 politics with flying colours, my thoughts on AFLX, brought to you by Bob Carter. But I ain't spending any time on it, because in the meantime... Every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. So, uh, moving on from AFLX, our next discussion is the people's question for the evening. And we're going to have a quick chat just about equality in the workplace specific to women's sports. So, the introduction here is really the Tiffany Cherry article um, that was published in the Herald Sun. So, to give you the background, Tiffany Cherry was... Obviously hosted Channel 9's Women's Footy Program, which is run and produced by Croc Media. She was replaced at the start of the year by Clint Stanaway. So Cherry's central premise in her article was essentially that a women's football program that had an all-female cast is absolutely fine to replace its female head, but her argument was that she should have been replaced with a female. This was 
obviously very opinionated on her, but really I felt quite uh, gutsy to go out and put this opinion on the line, given it's an opinion that's probably not going to be a popular one. Daisy Pierce weighed in and said that she just thinks this would be best person. Gordo, what was your take? I very much agree with Daisy Pierce, and I'm very glad about her take. It's and her t- the best quote from her was it's football. Like there's women's football, there's men's football. At the end of the day, it's football. And we've seen this a little bit with the BBL, where we had more women commentators commentating the men's game and, and vice versa. And I think the BBL, BBL, especially in the Australian sports landscape, their commentary teams in terms of the quality of their analysis, the quality of their play-by-play, the diversity of their cast is pretty much being spot on and probably leading the way. What you don't want, obviously, is your Channel 9. Channel 9, is probably the, Channel 9 cricket commentary team is probably the worst example of how sports may be run. Not only is it a lack of diversity, but it's an old boys club with weird specific rules that put, you know, cachet and mates versus against skill and background in, in the industry. What I don't agree with is that what she's essentially saying now is that the women's game should be only talked about by women, presented by women, involving women. And then you get the opposite effect to what I think what needs to happen to not legitimise a competition, but to grow the competition. You, the AFL in the in their sense, have gone to the men's game, gone, we need more women turning up to the sport. So they've done multiple procedures in place to make sure that families get down to games, that women get down to games, that women start talking about that product. They need to do the same with AFLW to make sure that men get down to games and boys get down to games and they realise that this is sport for all. Now, I do understand that it's a male-dominated industry like most industries still are, and so having... You're having the head person taken over by a man kind of does doesn't sit well, I think, with most people, especially people who are very involved with AFLW. But if you listen to many AFLW podcasts at the moment, and that's where most of the exposure is in those niche pockets, there is there does seem to be this kind of strong anti-male involvement movement going on when it comes to. The talking about and representing, and that means that's why we have we have the same similar problem in talking about this conversation. We we kind of sometimes feel all we're talking about AFLW, but then we go over that and said no, we're just two guys that like talking about sport, in particular football. And AFLW is the football season that's on right now, mm-hmm. so let's bloody well talk about it. I kind of had the opposite view, but it took me a long time to sort of sit through this. Yeah, because originally, okay, yeah, I, I like. Jerry's premise in, in the article and then I'm sort of thinking about it and okay so I'm a 23 year old guy I'm a journalism student this is the sort of role that I would eventually potentially be interviewing for and would I would I be comfortable with not being picked on the grounds of my agenda and I'm sure that any female listeners who are listening to this podcast are, that sounds like a really familiar situation yeah, so so I kind of sifted through this and I, I'm actually and this is not a dig at Queen Stanaway at all he's quite with his rights to apply for a job and he's also quite with his rights to be appointed. He's not like, you know. But I would be entirely comfortable with that position just going to a female. The reason being, and my kind of opinion on this is that for me, male sport has always been open. There's not a lot of barriers to break down for me to work there. Like, that's just there. I can do it, right? It's fine. It's it's there. And I, I wonder if the, just the difficulty that women have to experience to get to this position means that they should just have that role for them. I guess that it's there's also a not just about it's not just about picking the best person, but what we perceive as the best person, I would argue, is also built a little bit around a situational stereotype. Like sport has always been a male environment. There's gonna be a perception that male men are 
better suited to that role than an equivalent female. And I'm not sure we're in a position where we can just say, let's just pick the best person. I, I think a really interesting sort of case study, and it is slightly different, but when they brought in Title IX in the US, and Title IX was essentially legislation that meant that the spending on a, in women's and men's college sport needed to be equal. They needed to have the same access to facilities, change rooms, cones, etc., no matter what the sport. Before that law was brought in, we had virtually not like 90-ish percent female representation in leadership positions in women's sport in America. It's now down to 45. And it's a little bit of a movement away from Cherry, but I think we need to be really mindful of having a women's competition that now phases women out and is a women's sporting competition that's run by men. Okay, there's probably two points there. I do agree that there is a danger of that phasing out. I also think, though, that the majority of people applying for this position probably feel more comfortable if they know more about the sport, and I think that more women sports journalists will be following the AFLW more passionately than men sports journalists. And so I think, in some ways, they are going to be more suited for the role regardless. So if this wasn't clean, say this was Jerry Whaley. Mm-hmm. So say they approached Jerry Whaley and said, you've got time to do it on this day, can you be the head of the sport, women's sports football show? It does the same argument apply. Because I think, hands down, we could agree that Jerry Whaley would be a better host than Jerry. Mm-hmm. My, my like inherently better host. Yeah, but... So does the argument still stand, is what I'm saying? Because do you want... This is where it gets really tricky, because what are you judging? So you're judging that on... Well, to he's, me, he's Jerry, 25 years of experience. Jerry Whaley is clearly the best sports caller in the game, right? Yeah. So for me, I think that, like... But I'm, I'm also thinking, like, if I applied for that position, would it not be better to just let it go to a woman? Like, I know that the men shouldn't be in a position where they have to make that decision because the answer is basically that I am the opinion that Jared Whaley will get every job that he applies for. Correct. I don't think that has anything to do with gender. I, my argument really is probably, like, is it, what's the difference between Clint Stanoy and Tiffany Jerry? That, that part of it I don't mind. Where it gets tricky then is, Again, so I was saying that every candidate was equal and that, and that he was chosen because he was a man. Was every candidate not equal and he was the best candidate, in which case that should be fair cop. What I also think is going to be interesting is do you suddenly get pigeonholed? So I think what has been a more interesting development is, you know, Kerry Underwood has become the host of Offsiders, which, again, has been has always been a man and now has had a woman. And I've also seen that's probably the one that's the most diversified female panel talking about all sports. So I think that's, it's, yes, it's on the ABC, but it's, that's been the most progressive sports panel show. And you've seen, and this is brought up in her article, that you know, the likes of her, Neroli Meadows, Sam Lane, are all out there. So yes, they probably were positioned, like people were able to fill that position, but did they apply where they turned down? That's the part that wasn't going into. And what I would, what I'm concerned about a little bit as well is that do women's sports writers presenters, producers get pigeonholed into women's sport only as well. I think what I'd like to see more of is women talking about all sport, including men's sport, mm. and going down that path is what we see in the BBL. Yeah, I mean, I think the Jared case is, is really clear-cut. My argument is that when it's not clear-cut, you can't ever totally not see gender. Like, you just cannot sit in a room and just completely erase that from your decision-making process, I don't think. And, I mean, I am more or less just... I would just be comfortable with that role going to a woman. Like, I'm quite happy for them to, like, have that space. Um, again, there might, there might but be... But the argument doesn't work in reverse, either, does it? 
No, but I'm also thinking that you're making up for years and years and years of systematic discrimination that have excluded women from the footballing space to the point that the barriers they've had to break down to get into it are really, we're only seeing these female sports journalists becoming prominent. You know, Kelly Underwood took years for us to have a female corner and she could call that and she was heavily maligned. So I guess there's a broader argument about positive discrimination and the merits of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think in this case, and it's obviously really hard to know what the background to Channel 9 and Croc making the decision was, but I just don't think you can ever totally view these things objectively. I think that the biggest tick out of this or the biggest outtake, and this is probably where we do agree, is that the, the diversity in all of these calling panels will make the call better. Correct. Um, you know, so I don't think we should ever get to a point where we're not letting men cover women's sport. I'm also saying that there are still plenty of opportunities for that to happen. Um, and I think we just need to be really mindful of putting ourselves in a position where women are losing these positions um, as the game gets more and more. More and more prominent. Uh, I'm not saying that that is necessarily going to happen. I just think that it's something that needs to be consistently you know, monitored, so that we never end up with something that was as one-sided as one-sided as coverage has been for, for a long, long, long time. So the people's sub question. We've just added another one in here, which uh, is a topic that's going to sort of has come up in the last week of the Pride game, which has been announced to be played between Western Bulldogs and Carlton. Now, why do you have an issue with this? Mr. Jack Aniston. Speak for Dorothy Dixon. Well, I just I think it's peculiar that Carlton sat on the fence during the marriage equality debate and then has jumped on a ship here that has already sailed. I think for the players at Carlton that will be heavily behind this, I am just not sure that it doesn't smack of hypocrisy. In fact, I think it does smack of hypocrisy. Okay. So I think there's two parts. The first part is I think this is very much run by the players. It's being pushed by the players, and that's definitely fair enough. And there is a high percentage of the LGBTI community involved in playing in the AFLW. So I think if the players want to have a pride match, I think that's where it's coming from. I don't think it's being a uh, Carlton board member driven thing. It's being a player driven thing, and that's totally fair and fine. I think I'm all about that. What I don't think needs to happen, and this is where the difference is. People interviewed in, in more of the articles about the Pride game of being players and what it means to them, their job in that movement. Who they went for for official validation of the Yes movement was the Carlton Board. And they said that it is not our positional role to influence people on that vote, which is, I think, a fair enough position to have. They're, they're, they're a sports club. Do they have to go, we have to go yes because of public perception or do we have to make a stand? They didn't say They didn't say no, they just said it's not our position to influence our members either way. So that's very, I think that's very different on that topic to saying let's have a pride game because the players, the players are driving it. I understand there's, there's optically, uh, there's, mm. obvi- there's obvious hypocrisy here, mm. but I think it's, it's two different positions. It is from two different levels. My argument is if the AFL, sporting clubs, want to preach being at the front of social movements at times. And so we get, we'll get to sort of what these games tend to, your opinion of these mm-hmm. games as a general principle in a minute. But, you know, if they want to take all the benefits out of this, what was wrong with just coming out and supporting marriage equality? Uh, yeah, the, again, the hypocrisy is yeah, The hypocrisy to me, I mean, it just smacks me. As, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it's worth wasting huge amounts of daylight. But I also just like, yeah, okay, this is clearly player-driven. Why would you not come out earlier and support your players? It's clearly a cause that matters to a large part of your membership base. And I imagine across even the men's playing group, 
like for example, I don't judge to know their political views, but like I imagine that a lot of them as young twenty something men would have been And there's a man and there's an AFL prize game as well already out there. Not between these two clubs, yeah. but it already exists. Yeah, so no, no other players come out and they probably wouldn't anyway saying that they're against it. So I mean I just think yeah, uh, just jump on board, jump on board from the start, ride the wave the whole way. Um, you know, I mean it's just a little bit sour for me that they'll make a bucket load of whatever marketing dollar off having a pride game. Um, well I don't think they will, eh? Well I won't make any money off the game to be thinking with. No. There's not a lot of money. There's not a lot no, of money no, no, being no. made off this. And in terms of what, so marketing cachet, they get a little bit of positive buzz by being that positive movement. Yeah, but again, there's not there's not much money to be made in women's memberships. I don't know how much this flow. I don't know how much women's, the women's game flows into men's game yet in terms of memberships gained. So I think from that very cynical point of view, I don't have that much that much they don't have that much to gain out of it other than just backing their players in. In general, I don't know how much the AFL has to gain out of any of these movements. So having a Pride game, having one game dedicated per season to this community says that you're worth one game. Having a multicultural round, having an Indigenous round, having a country round says that, oh, here is your here is your little pocket of space to celebrate your difference and your community. But why not just bring in that into the whole of the AFL? Why not... Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, I'm again, I, and I'm against all days as well. I'm against international such and such day, international such and such day. Like these movements should be brought into, especially in the sporting environment, brought into the AFL as a, as a general whole. Like we are being a, we want to be an organisation that yes, we, we change our logo to yes, and that's what we're going to do the whole time, not just in this one game or one round. Yeah, well, that's essentially my argument. Like, do something that will actually matter, like speaking up while the debate is going on in favour yeah. of it, which would have mattered probably more to your players than playing a tokenistic game. And do that on everything. Do that on, like, with Dreamtime. How, okay, so yes, we have Dreamtime. Um, has that led to any actual political change for Indigenous people? Different question. Do the AFL have sufficient pathways that are actually helping Indigenous development? Again, different question. My point is that the game, having that round, that game, does not mean that we are at the forefront. And that's kind of really what I think is on display. And this is something that the NRL probably does better than the AFL in the sense that. Today, the Western Tiger, West Tigers released their Beyond Blue walkout jersey, and so if you buy it, all the money goes towards Beyond Blue. So they actually have gone, let's, let's, let's create awareness, and also let's make a contribution to that. The NRL have done so much work in the Indian pathway system, not only for getting players into play NRL, but getting players to finish school, getting players to go on to effort education, getting players back into club environments so they have a support network. They do a massive amount of work with men's health and mental illness. And I think that's where the AFL gets caught up in you know, we, we want to do these events, but we don't, want to, we don't want to upset any pocket of people. That's why you have the whole Adam Good saga, because we don't want to upset that pocket of people, which was so small but so loud compared to the vast majority that had no problem with it and actually want to support the Indigenous population and the Indigenous players. So I think you have to be careful with how much you buy into optics and how much you actually avoid making a proper change. So our final discussion point for the night is our conversation around... Yeah. Um, the book we've done this week is pretty hot off the printers. It's uh, Sam Lane's Raw. It's the stories behind AFLW, a movement bigger than sport. And, I mean, I think we have some different perspectives on this, and we're going to open with uh, your thoughts on the first section of this book by Sam Lane. So uh, I've performed the cardinal sin of all book clubs by not actually finishing the book. And my major theory behind this was, um, if you read the intro to the book, and most of it says... 
Now, this is a celebration of the, what it's taken to the women's game, the remarkable tales of a group of trailblazers. There are intimate stories from a band of pioneers who now have a league of their own. Now, when you read the intro, when you read all the hype about it, this seems like it's going to be not so much a feel-good book, but a book that's very much driven on characters from the get-go. There is not a lot of talk about the nitty-gritty, political, dour conversation that we had in the lead-up to the AFLW, which is what 20% of this book is spent doing in a chapter called The State of Origins. And I think that kind of soured the whole book for me. So this, that first 20% was just such hard reading about board meetings where the old men's club of the AFL were, were, were poo-pooing the league, which I already knew about. None of, the, none, of this, none of this book from the beginning really told me anything I didn't already know. I already knew that the AFL was very hesitant to change. They kind of cut it off at every corner and then eventually got done. Now we're here where we are. I've, and some of, part of this may be like just the recency bias, so it's like the AFLW is being hyped up and being so good at marketing itself and telling its story that most of this stuff I already knew as well. And also part of it's just my spheres of, of work. Like I, I'm intimately involved in sport, mostly AFL, so I already know bad machinations of this stuff. And that probably was why, so then after it took me a long time to get to that first section and then I didn't have enough time to go on with it, and when I was looking through the rest of the uh, profiles, a lot of those ones I either met and written profiles on myself, which is, again, just I'm lucky enough to do that, or I'd read those profiles or similar profiles before. And so I think two-part, I don't understand why the first part of the book was given a fifth of it, essentially. And part two is I don't quite understand why this book wasn't written last year. Okay, interesting. So my original thinking, and I think this is the same, although I'm not as severe on this as you, I thought the the first part of the book was informative. I thought it was just a little bit long, and I thought it had exclusions that shouldn't have been exclusions. I think this would have been a more interesting chapter if it had gone back further than just what was happening in AFL boardrooms and had gone back to the 80s to the foundation of the Victorian Women's League Correct. and gone and given us a little bit more of that scope that we were talking about in, in the context of the Freo game and the crowd record that perhaps is still missing and still needs to be told. And I think that is a story that still needs to be told and I think this potentially misses an opportunity. I found the, the undertaking sort of outlined in the first 50 or so pages of this introduction pretty, like I found them informative. Yeah. I liked understanding what was going on in the back rooms of AFL House. Again, yes, we probably already knew that it was there. Perhaps the biggest argument for this section being different was that some of that stuff comes out in the stories anyway. In terms of like the story of Craig Starkovich and his transition into coaching um, men, uh, sorry, into coaching women's football, how men's football is a similar journey to what the AFL itself went through. Correct. And so perhaps this was just in need of something shorter. Um, I also thought that the biggest thing for me, and I thought this was a glaring opportunity in this, was that we mentioned Hannah Mouncey and then we gave her less than 100 words. And I was kind of like, okay, put that there, great. It really does. It, I felt like obviously Sam Lane's a journalist, so she, she does, and she writes those journalistic values, so I think she felt compelled to mention her. But then the book is obviously a celebration, mm-hmm. and then to talk about her story is not a celebration. She she was she's been excluded from playing, so it doesn't quite sit with the book. So mm-hmm. as we said, I think off air, just don't include it. Just go. Yeah, I'm being this is a positive book. There will be a different space and a different writer, perhaps, to write that that story later on. Yeah, and this is not always a positive book, but that was where I felt like going through what had already happened in season one was the point where like you needed to stop on 
that chapter because if you're already like if, if you're reading this book, it's assumed you have an interest in women's football and you know what happened in season one and you know the hurdles that cropped up at various times and the problems that were still there that still need to be worked out. So again, that section and once I got through it, I think that's where the goal really started. Yeah. And it's obviously you missed that. I know I've read yeah, I've read parts of each yeah. of the profiles, but I haven't ever finished Elder Brook. And so this was kind of for, for me, where the book shone was that I thought the athletes that you spoke about that are fairly well known, like I kind of had the same opinion on them when I looked at the type, the names in this book. I went, oh, so you've got Darcy and you've got Daisy Pierce and you've got Sarah Perkins and you've got Katie Brennan. Like, oh, I know all those girls. Like I see them on TV. They are so central to the fiber of AFLW. They're, if you follow this even slightly, they are the household names. They are the girls that you instantly recognize. And I found that one of the biggest strengths was that they actually gave me new perspectives on yeah. And the way that they got to where they got to, uh, I came out of the Daisy Pierce story with a much greater understanding and liking for her. There's a perception, I think, with Daisy, and this is partly because she's been sort of a poster girl for a lot of this, that she's just everywhere and she's always glammed up. And there's a great analogy in there about a teammate who couldn't believe that she had rocked up. Daisy Pierce had rocked up at a Melbourne footy club, barbecue, not red shoes. And so I think that really sort of was one example of changing how you see her mm. and getting deeper. I mean, I thought the story, Katie Brennan's story, I really enjoyed um, to the point that I colour-coded my calendar in the same way that Katie Brennan colour-codes hers just because I'm a fangirl. Um, but again, I, I mean, I thought that understanding what she does on a daily basis, her desire to set up her own business, um, to keep herself rigidly organised, the struggle she went through in season one to get back from injury, that effect on her, I think it really tapped into a much deeper side of a lot of these players and I think that was the strength and then uh, the second part of this was that there are stories in here that are probably not as well known um, Kirby Bentley uh, who isn't playing this year but is an indigenous football player in season one for Frio um, went through a, a really interesting and difficult childhood at times and her story is beautiful well, I mentioned Craig Starchevich I think it was a, that was an interesting perspective because that is the perspective of transforming a male into someone that women's footy yeah I mean my take really is that it's a definite read yeah um, I would probably err on the side of speed reading the first 60 odd pages I'd do I'd do the opposite and go definite definite read don't read the first chapter get into the book get into the flow hmm. um, for the stories again as a profile writer and as a journalist Sam Lane's probably not one of my favourite and I've got a lot of her were just because she's obviously very present. Um, I personally think there are better profile writers out there. Emma Quayle probably is my favourite in this space with her draft story, which is a very similar style of format yeah. and structure yep. and tells amazing stories about how people get to this this position. So, yeah, the stories in here are very are very good, very touching, and yeah, especially if you don't know them already or there are ones that you don't know quite as well, definitely worth reading. And then if you are very interested in the minutiae of the background of the most very recent history of women's football in Australia, then go back and read the first chapter instead of Origins. There's an interesting conversation, I think, to have around how these sort of profiles, and you'll be someone that's worth flagging on this, how these profiles are written. And I guess there's so many different ways of doing this. And I think, obviously, Sam goes at a different angle, but I came at this for reading Flagger, who is like the ultra-heavy present in his own work. To the point where his book is really a book about me and Richard. Like, not so much, but it's still a wonderful, wonderful read. But 
she was Sam was kind of yeah not I wouldn't say it was awkward but there were times where I felt she could have been more present it depends on your writing style I suppose and so as a predominantly a newspaper writer she is very objective in her writing style even mm. when she's writing a profile mm. traditionally a magazine piece so I prefer magazine profiles, which is essentially what these are, to be the New Yorker style. So it's yeah, either absolutely. it's either you have complete access to the person and you're telling a conversation almost in Q and A style, ghostwriting them, being like, "This is my story." At circa the player's voice or exclusive insights, all of these yeah. player first ghostwritten websites we're seeing. How I overcame X Y Z, or you go New Yorker style and you go, "This is my opinion of this person through my lens via the exposure I got." Yeah. Which is the only really way you can tell this about ghostwriting someone's own story. Because what you're actually writing about is your reaction to their story. So mm-hmm. I met Tyler Harris, she told me her story. Yeah. This is how it made me felt. This is the things I didn't realise. And on this, it went back and made me reflect about X, Y, Z. This just doesn't really happen there. It kind of like, it almost becomes like a factual biography as opposed to a, a profile piece. Yeah, there's and no I, character analysis. There's no kind of reactionary, no. and you need a little bit more of yourself as the writer in there to make these books colourful yeah. and invoke the reader to make their own decisions as well. I, I mean, I think these figures are worthy of admiration, but I think that generally the perspective that she comes at them from is not one of criticism. It, it's an interesting thing. Interesting that you mentioned the New Yorker style because I think there's an advantage in being able to react to what people are doing because then you, as a reader, get more of a sense for what it is actually like to sit and what's Taylor Harris doing? You know, what's her body language? How does she make you feel? What's it like to have coffee with any of them? And maybe that's the element of this that, well, it's not, I wouldn't say it's missing because I think the pieces are still valuable. It's just the way that she's chosen to write these pieces. Yeah, no, very much On that... Do we have a book for next week so that the listeners can read along? So uh, we're not actually going to have a book. We're going to change the scene a little bit for next podcast. So having had two books, we're now going to have a documentary. So we're going to have a discussion of Outsiders, uh, which is about the Western Bulldogs premiership. I'll give you my quick tips for round three of the AFLW. Saturday's first game will be Adelaide versus the Bulldogs. I said the Bulldogs carrying on as premiership favourites, winning away at Norwood Oval. Look out for the wind there. It's very open ground. Uh, game two will be Carlton versus Brisbane and Icon Park. An important game for Carlton, though. They're currently 2-0, obviously, but I think Brisbane win this one on pure class alone, obviously, with the absence of Bree Davey. Sunday kicks off with Conway versus GLS in a game that both teams really need to win to stay in. I think Conway gets this one done. I think they're going to have follow the same format as last year and kick on late and halfway through the season is late enough for them. And to round out, Fremantle versus Melbourne at Fremantle Oval. Fremantle are the team, uh, sorry, Melbourne are the team to beat this year, and I see them being beating Fremantle comfortably. So thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us in Windsor on Monday nights. Um, I'm a little bit too close to, to Revs. Jen off, back up the freeway home. Uh, always tell you what you should have done. Monday's experts. Always know what's cooking, how the game was lost and how it could have been won. And when Monday comes around, everyone's a